This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Last week, President Trump abruptly announced that American soldiers would be leaving Kurdish-controlled territory in Syria. The news shocked the U.S. military. It was also an unwelcome surprise to Kurdish fighters, whom the U.S. had backed in the fight against ISIS. The announcement was good news for Syria's neighbor Turkey, who fear the work of a Kurdish guerrilla group known as the Kurdish Workers' Party. This guerrilla group has waged a decades-long insurgency inside Turkey, and Turkey and the U.S., or considered a terrorist organization. Shortly after Trump's announcement, Turkish troops began a military assault on the Kurdish-controlled parts of Syria. A number of evangelical leaders, including some of his biggest supporters, like Franklin Graham, criticized the decision. I'm just going to read one of Franklin Graham's tweets that he directed about this particular situation. He said, Today, I ask that you join me in praying for the lives affected by the White House decision to pull U.S. troops out of northern Syria. Both Democrat and Republican leaders are deeply concerned because this would, in essence, abandoning our closest allies there, the Kurdish people. The Kurds are the ones who have been leading the fight against ISIS in Syria. Also pray for the Christians who the Kurds have been protecting. They could be annihilated. Would you pray with me that President Donald Trump will reconsider? Thousands of lives hang in the balance. So that is a tweet from Franklin Graham on this topic. Since last week, Turkish attacks have killed a number of civilians, including at least three Christians. Wanted to learn more about the Kurds and discuss why this story is important for Christians. Today is Wednesday, October 16th. You're listening to Quick to Listen, and each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes discussing major cultural events. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. And I'm Mark Galley, editor-in-chief. So, Mark, I think that this is a hot enough topic that we should definitely weigh in and do a gut check on it. So I'm just curious how you've been processing this news. From a foreign policy, political perspective, it was deeply disheartening because it isn't the first time we have turned our backs on a fighting militia who is doing the dirty work for us. Sometimes that happened in Southeast Asia. Now it's happening in the Middle East in which we just reverse policy. And that's just so devastating. You one would One has higher hopes for one's government that they will maintain loyalty even when it's difficult. But that doesn't seem to be as easy to do as I imagine, maybe. I don't know. That's the most char- charitable way of putting it. And then from the Christian perspective, I'm like many people, I'm just really confused about the status of Christians in various parts of the Middle East. And I'm sure it affects them. You know, you think of them as brothers and sisters in Christ having to endure warfare and in some regions, persecution or being second-class citizens. But one of the reasons I'm anxious to do the show is to find out, so what exactly is the, what are the consequences for Christian churches in this latest development? This was something that was announced, and I was like, wait, what? We have U.S. soldiers there? So I hate coming off as if, like, I know a ton about the stuff that's going on. It did seem like a number of people were immediately up in arms. And I think what was kind of just shocking to me was how quickly this whole thing played out. I mean, Trump made his decision, I feel like maybe on Wednesday or Thursday last 
week. And then by the end of the week, the Turkish military had already crossed the border into this area. And I felt like in real time, this assault was happening. And I knew that people were tweeting about like places that were getting attacked and bombed, you know, and it was just like, wow, like the decisions of one person right there, in this case, the president, people are dying. Like it's like, I don't know, I, I just felt it a little bit more viscerally than I sometimes feel about these things. And it made me yeah, pretty sick, to be honest. And then the the speed with which thing events unfolded makes one think, okay, this was probably some a conversation they'd been having for a few months. Because you just don't, a day one, say, let's go attack oh, another country. Oh, you're talking about Turkey. Yeah. yeah. You have to, that takes mm-hmm. weeks or months of preparation before you're ready to do something like that. So anyway, it's very sad. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about who will be joining us to get into this really important discussion we have? Yes. Joining us is Charlie Costa. He's the pastor of Insight for Living Arabic and the voice of Nafitha Al-Hayat, the Arabic language broadcast for Insight for Living Ministries. He also serves as a magistrate for the Family Court of the Evangelical Community in Lebanon. And he serves as pastor of the Ras Barut Baptist Church in Barut, Lebanon. And he's had an active ministry all th- throughout the Middle East. And so he's going to help us see that that part of the world from his eyes. And I think that should help us get a better understanding of what's going on. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for the nice introduction. And where are you, uh, where are you talking, speaking to us from? I'm currently in Beirut, huddled away in my safe office. I'm hoping the generator doesn't quit on us while in the midst of all this. I think we're okay. My sister lives there right now, and I know that the power is often out for part of the day. So what part of the day is it usually out for you? It varies from one day to the other. You know, they have different schedules. Basically, generators come on automatically, except for a few seconds of interruption. Things continue as usual. So they're only interrupted for a few seconds at a time? Yes. Okay. Yes. I lived in Mexico City when they had a shortage, electricity shortage for some reason, and they would shut it off for hours at a time, especially in the evening. Turned out to be a blessing. We found that what it forced us to do is light candles and then actually talk to one another, my wife and I, or play a game together. (laughs) So sometimes those things can work for the good. Amen. Pastor Costa, thank you so much for joining us today. And maybe the, the first thing that you can kind of explain for us and our listeners is who the Kurds are and where they live. The Kurds basically are a group of Iranian tribes that live in an area that is between Turkey, Iran, Syria, and Iraq. They came to that area because it's a mountainous area. And if you know anything about the topography of the Middle East, mountainous areas tend to be dwelt by minorities because they're easier to defend militarily. So they always try to hit the high ground, uh, high places. And the Kurds took that mountainous area. Back when they took it over, they didn't know it was oil rich and fertile land and all that that we can see today. There were some uh, strategic advantages for them coming from where they came, especially from Iran, to dwell in that part of the world. So I I think for the purpose of this conversation, it's important to say that they see themselves obviously as not Arab. Do they speak a separate language too? Yes, they do. They're not Arab and they're not Persians and they're not Turks. You know, the other three ethnicities, if you like, in the Middle East, the Kurds are the number four ethnicity or ethnic group in the Middle East. They're about 30 million 
in total. And they speak a Kurdish language. Of course, it varies, you know, from one area to the other slightly, as English would vary between England and the U.S. And sometimes English would vary between states in the north of the U.S. and states in the south, things like that, you know, just slight variations. But otherwise, they speak what's called the Kurdish language. So we might have to go back a couple decades in the history of the Middle Eastern region to talk about this. But can you tell us a little bit about why the Kurds do not have their own country? If you study the history of the Kurds, you will see they have tried to have their own homeland for hundreds of years. You will read about different rebel leaders that tried to establish a Kurdish homeland. And even after the First World War, you will uh, see that the Allies, the Western Allies, marked an area on the map that would become a Kurdish homeland. But three years later, in the Treaty of Lausanne, I think, they abolished that. You know, they backed on their promise. The Kurds were back in square one. You have to remember also that the Kurds have been through several genocides, especially by the Turks, unfortunately, and and others too. I mean, if you remember the Armenians also were slaughtered by the Turks around 1915 during the First World War. So the Kurds received similar treatment among other minorities. Again, they were dispersed and displaced. Uh, Some of them were moved into uh, the region of Anatolia in Turkey just so they would lose the cohesion of a nation. Of course, Turkey is in control of one area of the Turkish, what would have been a Turkish homeland. Uh, Iran is in control of another. Iraq is in control of another. And Syria is also in control of a portion of that supposed homeland. So that way they quashed any hopes for the Kurds. Now, you will, uh, if you go to the reign of Saddam Hussein, again, he attacked them. And actually one of the extremely sad events during Saddam's reign in Iraq was the Halabja battle, where Saddam used chemical weapons to kill the Kurds. Maybe some of the listeners will remember some of these ugly images that were broadcast on the news and uh, in the papers. Kurds were attacked again and again. After the fall of Saddam, you will see that they got a fresh breath of air, if you like, and they tried to secede from Iraq. They took over Kirkuk because Kirkuk is extremely oil-rich, and apparently it was initially part of the Kurdish homeland, that Saddam took from them years and years ago. They took over Kirkuk, but the central government in Baghdad retook the city and annulled the the vote that by the Kurds to secede from Iraq. So now they're self-governing, but they're still officially part of Iraq. Glad you brought up the chemical weapons incident with Saddam Hussein. That's what I remembered. I was going to ask you if I remembered that correctly. So they have had their... Wow, their share of atrocities committed against them. That's just really sad. Yeah, Uh, you look at it, obviously that's the sinful nature of man. 
And at the same time, we cannot deny the fact that these incidents also opened the door to the gospel. So people turn back to God. When things like that happen, people, I guess, are softened or look back to God. This is part of the reason that we see ministry very much alive in the region of Kurdistan. And I think the statement that you read in the introduction by Franklin Graham reflects his uh, disappointment because of the type of ministry that Franklin has been supporting and his organization in northern Iraq, in Kurdistan. They have a very vibrant ministry. You're saying Samaritan's Purse does? Samaritan's Purse, yes. They have a very vibrant ministry up there. And a lot of people have come to Christ because of that ministry and other ministries, obviously. I think Franklin's reaction was not just a reaction to a political event. Franklin was speaking about something that's real, that would be interrupted, which is namely the ministry to reaching out the Kurds. And the Kurds seem to be open, do not react the same way other ethnic groups react to the gospel. Yeah, our listeners should be aware that especially many of our listeners would would be deeply troubled by Franklin Graham's political statements in the U.S. What they don't realize, on the other hand, is that his Samaritan's Purse is one of the most effective ministries for both the social, reaching out to people's needs and sharing the gospel in the Middle East. So uh, this is a great work that uh, Samaritan's Purse does. I, I am aware of that. I don't want to jump the gun, but if you will allow me, I want to reflect on that decision by the president. You need to understand, I usually tell people in the West, I say the only person who understands the complexities of the situation in the Middle East region is God. No one else does, trust me. Okay, we know some things, but there are a lot of other things we don't know. But here's the deal. What has been very disappointing is the view that we heard repeatedly on the news in this part of the world, in the Middle East, that America abandons its allies. And it was as if a word of caution, don't ally yourselves with America, because at an opportune moment for America, for the interests of America, America will abandon you if you are an ally of the U.S. And to me, that's extremely disappointing. Not only the issues related to ministry and all the other stuff, which I think is very valid, but at the same time, it hurts deeply to hear that people here are using the decision of the president as an example. And this is not the first time, by the way. This is not the first time that America has abandoned its allies. It seems to me it's also only because it's politically opportune that America supports Israel because of the number of Jewish voters in the America in the US populace that America supports Israel. It's because some of the media outlets are owned by Jewish Americans that America is supporting Israel. But would America abandon Israel if it's opportune politically? This is a question. Just so that we don't become foreign policy today, because 
it is well, a, this well, is one I, of those. I they need to, to hear this, you know. And I'm yeah, yeah, go, that's fine. No, no, no. Further. That's we we want our guests to say what they think, even if it uh, is dealing with foreign U.S. foreign policy, because that does make a difference in the Christian communities. But I think I'd like to then ask you, as a as a Christian thinking about the Christian Kurds and Christians in that region, talk about some of the effects that's having on them. I mean, that's the thing we're most interested in this show. So you've set the kind of the foreign policy political situation very well. What are the historic churches in the uh, among the Kurds? How many Christians are? How many Kurds are Christians? Give us some background there. No one has an accurate statistic of how many Kurds are Christians because they are coming to Christ in good numbers. I don't want to exaggerate. And the thing is, we are fully aware that a lot of them have been evacuated. A lot of the Christians have been evacuated by, by the Armenians. Armenia asked for a ceasefire to evacuate some of the Christians that are living in the area that Turkey has attacked, and they have evacuated them. Of course, Turkey at this point specifically doesn't have a quarrel with, with the Christians, but you know how you know civilians get killed in these situations regardless of their religious affiliation. So Christians or some of the Christians, especially the Armenian Christians in that part of Syria, were evacuated. So to where? Um, to where to where uh, were they? To Armenia. Okay. To Armenia. But the thing is, the thing is, of course, that empties the area of any Christian witness, at least theoretically. You know, God has his way. I'm not talking on the divine level. I'm speaking on the human level, obviously. It leaves the place without witness for Christ. Even those who support the president were disappointed with that because the view in the Middle East is always that America protects Christians. And that's very important. You would hear it when when a Christian goes to the embassy, whether in Beirut or any other country in the Middle East, to the U.S. embassy, and gets refused for a visa. What a shock. I'm a Christian. They should give me the visa. I should be able to travel to America. America protects Christians. All of this plays together to create a very, very difficult situation. What amazes me is that... The news is saying that the president is pressuring Turkey to stop, but maybe that's a too little too late, in my opinion. So I, I actually wanted to back up a little bit more when we were talking about what it means to be distinctly Kurd. And I didn't know how that worked as it applied to their religious background. Is this a group that is traditionally Sunni or Shia, or what have they traditionally practiced? They're predominantly predominantly Sunni. Few are Shiites, just a few, but predominantly Sunni because they became Sunni under the Ottoman Empire, which was, you know, the largest power, regional power in the Middle East and ruled most of the Middle East. They were, of course, under that rule and they uh, went into the Sunni faith, although they tend to be a little more relaxed about their Sunni faith than the Turks themselves. You won't necessarily find some of the historic Christianity that you find elsewhere in the region it, within the Kurdish population. Not really. Whoever became a Christian converted 
which is pretty unique from what I understand. Yes and no. You have to realize conversions are happening all over the Middle East, all over the Arab countries, all over North Africa. Muslims coming to Christ. And I can tell you one story after the other. I personally baptized, by the last count, just in the last six years, I baptized, I think, about 55 Muslim converts who've come to Christ. And they have a glaring testimony, even at the cost of them being killed or ostracized by their families. It's a costly decision for them to follow Christ, but you see them coming. You see them coming. I baptized some in Kurdistan in one of the artificial lakes there near a dam, and it was freezing cold. And to this day, it was one of the most glorious experiences I've ever gone through, seeing those people declaring Christ as Lord and Savior. I baptized some in Erbil, the capital city of Kurdistan. There are several house churches there. Actually, I was talking to one of the pastors there a few days ago. I met another pastor from there about a month ago at a conference, and we talked about what God is doing. So things are happening. Things are happening. They don't beat the drum too much. They don't toot their horn because it get it might get dangerous. So no need to flaunt that. But things are happening, and people are coming to Christ. Can you just mm-hmm. clarify In the Kurdish-controlled regions of Syria, are the only Christians in there converts, or are there also historic Christian congregations that are there as well? Catholic, Orthodox, or Presbyterian, or— If there are, they have migrated there. They're not originally Kurds in general, okay? Unless they come from a Kurdish family that converted at some point, and then they are the children or the grandchildren of that individual who came to Christ. But otherwise, they're all converts because mostly they're Sunnis. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. Our listeners should be aware, I mean, the numbers in one respect, for example, your 55 baptisms sound small compared to the size of megachurches in the U.S., but when you're in a situation like that, that's an extraordinary number. Uh, I remember from my days at editing a magazine called Christian History, and we covered William Carey, the first one of the first mini, uh, missionaries to India. It took him seven years before he was able to baptize one convert. To hear of these numbers in the dozens may not seem like a lot to us, but they really are remarkable for the, given the region. I'll tell you, the first time I baptized in Kurdistan, I baptized two young ladies in a kiddie pool. 
I don't know if that I don't know if that counts, does it? (laughs) Oh man, you better believe it. I'm a Big B Baptist, and they were both dunked all the way. There you go. Okay, well that's all we need to know. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I tell you, people are eager to follow Christ. We had the privilege of establishing two churches, planting two churches in northern Iraq near the area of Mosul. And both churches were overrun by ISIS, all the membership displaced. I'll tell you what, those churches, for me, are mega churches, although they had like 30 or 40 members. Faith for them is a costly deal. So why uh, did—I think you mentioned that the Turks don't have a particular animus against Christians, but the Armenians nonetheless felt that Christians should be removed from the war-torn area, or Christians in particular. So— What's going on there? Are they well, hostile to Christians? No, but you know, in in the in the midst of war, you don't get asked about your religion. You know, bombs explode and then planes attack and civilians get killed. So Armenia, having a group of Armenians living in that area, there was a bigger concentration of Armenians living at the beginning of the Syrian civil war, but a lot of them have left. So what was left in that area were evacuated by Armenia. Armenia is taking in all the Armenians, and not only that, they are granting them Armenian citizenship. So what's the threat to Christians? Because, as Franklin Graham mentioned, the Kurds have been protecting Christians. So there is some fear that with the U.S. pulling out, the safety of those Christians is, is, is at risk. It doesn't appear to be at risk from the Turks. It's, it's, it's a risk from the war. Oh, just from the you war. Know? Okay. Yes. Not, not, yes. For, not for religious no, persecution of sorts. No, if that was the case, Turkey would not have allowed Armenia to evacuate those folks. So there's no fear from the other side that with the destabilization of the whole, whole Kurdish area that ISIS could take control again? Well, there is a lot of fear. I mean, you have to realize the camp where the, I think they said there was about 70,000 in that camp. About 10,000 of them were ISIS fighters. And that camp, they've lost control over that camp. To the point where today President Erdogan wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today committing to the West that he will not allow ISIS fighters to filter out of that area into Europe or any Western country. So that is a valid fear. If it was not, why would the president write an article in an American newspaper? The very fact, so, and the very, but the very fact that he has to say that suggests that he might not be successful at it. <laughs> well, I tell you, they're playing games. They're playing games. He holds these refugees sort of as a sword hanging over the head of Europe, European countries, and threatens every time they don't do what he wants that he would unleash those refugee boats landing everywhere in Europe. That's what he does. Read the news, follow the news, you'll see that that's what he's doing. What he's trying to do, basically, he is trying to reestablish the Ottoman Empire again, neo-Ottoman Empire, and he is, you know, the sultan. If you follow Turkey, it was a democratic system. The president was just a figurehead. He reigns but does not rule, if you like. Now it's a presidential system. Everything, totally. 
Okay, he now the yeah. So help me, I mean, with my confusion, because my memory says that Turkey has had a history of persecuting Christians. I seem to recall a decade or so ago the imprisonment or the murdering of some Christians. And if he is in fact headed for Ottoman Empire, he's certainly going to want to make Christians second-class citizens. So help me understand. The relationship of Christians in Turkey, how, how are they, what's their life like? Let me just tweak what you said. Yeah, please do, because uh, my Turkey, memory is foggy. That's fine, that's fine. You're, you, you, you're right, just, just to make sure that we give our listeners a clear picture. Of the persecution of Christians is an elective thing for Turkey. They use it for political manipulation. Sometimes they persecute, sometimes they don't. If it is politically helpful to them, they will do it. Now, what they did in the past was basically try to keep Christians under control rather than persecute. They limited what Christians could have or not. Plus, just in the last 10 or 15 years, they put the pressure on private Christian schools established mostly by missionaries for missionary kids. And then Turkish children started going there. So they started hearing the gospel. So they clamped down on that. Every once in a while, you'll hear a story about somebody either getting killed or persecuted or imprisoned for their Christian faith, especially a Turk who has converted. You have to keep in mind that the Erdogan regime religiously and philosophically is very much influenced by the Muslim Brotherhood. And that's why if you read the news, you notice that the Erdogan regime is not a friend of Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia follows the Wahhabi Sunni school of thought, if you like, in Islam. And that is totally contrary to the Muslim Brotherhood. Look at Qatar. Qatar is a friend of Erdogan because they follow the Muslim Brotherhood philosophy and, and teachings. So all of that comes into play. If you look when uh, Muslim Brotherhood took over in Egypt after the revolution in 2011, the churches were really persecuted. Several churches, I think more than a hundred churches got burned in Egypt, for which I'm very grateful to President Sisi, the current regime. He ordered the Egyptian army to rebuild every single one of them, you know? So relatively speaking, I mean, we this, there's this phrase that the Kurds have been protecting Christians or seem to have a more friendly relationship with Christians, even though they're dominantly Muslim. So just theoretically speaking, life under Turkish rule or Kurdish rule, which would be better for Christians, or is it more or less the same thing since they're both Muslim-dominated? No, not the same. Kurdish rule is much better. But let me tell you, sort of like a principle, minorities protect minorities. Same thing is in Syria. The Alawite minority that is ruling the country protects Christians. Kurds protect Christians. When Saddam was in power, Iraq has a Sunni minority. It was a minority government, if you like. Christians were doing generally well under Saddam, much better than they're doing now under the majority rule of the Shiite. Uh, you go to Syria, Christians in general love President Bashar al-Assad because he protected them during the war. 
I actually want to get into some of these more complicated dynamics for Christians. If you can hold that thought right there, though, I just want to like summarize what I where I think we are right now to make sure that I'm like understanding correctly what's happening. Essentially, we have this area in Syria that is controlled by the Kurds. In this area, there's a number of Christians that are living there, either because they're converts or maybe, I can't tell right now, if some of them are part of these historic Christian communities. So with the U.S. troops leaving, it's left them vulnerable to Turkey's military assault, which started there. And Turkey is not out there to get Christians, but Christians are part of the collateral damage of what's happening, part of this assault. Is that a correct understanding? Perfect. I just I just want to make sure because I think there is... From from everything that I've seen over the past five or so years of covering this, we've seen areas where Christians are specifically targeted, but this is not one of those instances where Christians are being specifically targeted. They're just ending up as the collateral damage. That's very helpful because some of the comments I've heard seem to suggest that they are being targeted, but let's, let's make it clear that they're not as such in this particular instance. Look, you might find an individual incident, if you like, but that doesn't make it a principle doesn't make it a fact of the war that Christians are being targeted. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I want to talk about this minority thing because I actually find this one of the the more complicated nuances of understanding Christianity in the Middle East, which is that you have this situation where Christians in various countries, we mentioned Syria being one of them, Iraq being another one, where the historic Christian communities there have been willing to support governments that at many times have committed human rights atrocities because those strong men have also said, like, we'll guarantee your own safety then. And I'm just wondering what you can tell us, Pastor Charlie, with regards to that, how that changes how Christians are perceived by their Muslim neighbors. Is this something where their Muslim neighbors might say, like, we understand you have to do what you have to do for your community to survive? Or does that make them hated by the other groups? In general, Christians in the Middle East are not political. They try to stay on the down low, try to mind their own business, do their own thing. Take Syria, probably the best example. Churches are very much under the control of the government. I preached, I can't tell you how many times. Actually, I was just there last Friday, preached in Syria. I love Syria. I love the Syrians. Had an opportunity to preach at a Baptist church. People were out to the street, literally. There were probably about 400 people we could maybe stand about seven or eight more people in the place standing, but that's it. And it was a can of sardines. People are hungry to hear the word. I can't tell you the number of people from different backgrounds, religious backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds are all there listening to the word of God being preached. That is under the protection of the government. The government will protect that. You talk about religion, your faith, in the church, you're okay. The minute you start talking about politics, then they start frowning on you. Yeah, the Syrian platform for Christians living there is safe. You know, they're not being uh, persecuted or they're not being treated as second-class citizens. Uh, To the contrary. You know, no one will ask you, what religion are you? You know, what, do you, what religion do you belong to? No one will ask you that question. As long as you stay out 
of politics. I've dealt with the Syrian uh, secret police on a number of occasions, and they've asked for my sermon notes, which I gladly supplied. And I've always said, that which I have, I gladly give. I have Jesus Christ, and I want to give him, and there's no threat to the political regime in that sense. So I've even challenged those policemen to come and make sure that I'm preaching the notes that I gave them that morning. (laughs) You know, actually, I was preaching a series on the family uh, on one of my trips, and I told that policeman, I said, why don't you bring your wife with you and come? And, and make sure that I'm, that's what I'm preaching. That's what I'm teaching. And he sure did. He came that <laughs> night. You know, I was preaching up in Aleppo in northern Syria. We noticed this policeman after getting the notes coming every night. And the last night he was there, he left weeping. He was touched. The Holy Spirit spoke to his heart. Syria protects Christians. You may disagree with President Bashar al-Assad. Look, politics is dirty. We have to understand that. We do different things, even in the West. We do different things. We might not kill people, but we kill their reputations. We may not kill people, but we destroy them financially. All of it is abuse of human rights. We do it just differently. What President Assad has done for Christians, very few leaders in the Middle East have done for the, for Christians that way. I'm not political. I'm not supporting one regime over the other. All I'm saying is reality. I see it. I touch it. I speak to people that feel safe. Okay. Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good perspective that we need to hear. That's very good. Thank you. I was wondering if we can conclude this show with you just giving us a sense of how the various Christians that you are meeting throughout the region regard American Christians. I would just love to hear all the different opinions that you encounter with regards to that. There are a number of things that come to mind when talking to people, I mean, how they react to American Christians. The the first thing that I see is that they feel that American Christianity is literally helping Christianity survive all over the world by supporting missions by supporting relief programs in different countries through missionaries and through churches. Americans, whether they know it or not, they are helping to sustain, at least on the human level, Christianity in different parts of the world, not just the Middle East. The billions of dollars that American Christians give every year help that happen, make it happen. And for that, I'm very grateful. If I could shake the hand of every giver, every Christian follower of Christ who gives sometimes out of their own need, I want to say thank you because they make it a reality that we can go and reach people for Christ. Secondly, there is a sense of disappointment, not only a sense of gratitude, but a sense of disappointment, because there is, we feel sometimes that American Christians are naive. Politicians can sell them anything by supporting what they say with a verse of Scripture. I'll give you an example, especially when it comes to America's support. I'm talking from a Middle Eastern perspective. When it comes to America's support of Israel, 
And they will immediately say, Oh, God promised he will bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. But do we support Israel when Israel sometimes does what it does in killing and maiming children and women? I saw a picture just recently of the types of bullets that sometimes the Israeli army is using in the West Bank to defuse Palestinian strikes and sit-ins and demonstrations. Just looking at these bullets will make you hurt. Feel physical pain, literally. No one takes a stand for the weak, for the broken, for the hurt. And it's not because American Christians are bad. No, because that's what they're fed through the media, and they don't read what they need to read. They continue to be sometimes naive. That's why a lot of times when Americans come to the Middle East, visit Israel, and visit other Arab countries, they go back with a different perspective. I'm not saying don't support Israel. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be smart. Be smart. Don't just go with the flow and stand up for people that Jesus would have stood up for. There is a third view, which is sometimes American Christians are gullible. I've seen it over the years where just anybody can come and sell a ministry, sell an idea, make money, and people will go glory hallelujah after that idea. And then lo and behold, years down the line, they discover that the money was just scammed. And unfortunately, that's the impression people have of some American Christians, that you can sell them anything. That's a bit disappointing. I think in that sense, Americans are growing because of the situations around the world. They're becoming more informed, but it's taken a long time. Well, thank you so much for really giving us a very concrete overview. If anyone has feedback for us about this show, which we hope you have feedback, please send us that feedback. We're at CT Podcasts on Twitter. You can also send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. And we look forward to hearing what you have to say. It's really awesome when we can get someone who is on the ground and able to share a perspective that is very different than speaking to someone in our own country here. I want to just remind everyone right now that supporting the show means subscribing to Christianity Today magazine. Right now, we are in the middle of our October issue. I know, Mark, we talk about him all the time. He reads through the entire magazine before it actually goes to print. I don't know if you wanted to chat about something in particular, Mark. Well, we haven't mentioned in a while the, the news section of the magazine. It's a, little, it's a little unusual nowadays for a monthly magazine to have a news section, but it's been one of our traditions in CT, going back to the days when it was a biweekly and the news was more, was more current. So we still cover incidents that have happened in the previous month, although we usually cover them from the perspective of what trend does this represent. But I've all, I always find it helpful. Of, uh, for example, in the October issue, we have a story from Germany, one from Algeria, one from Egypt. You know, in the rush of the news, sometimes you miss these stories. And it's just a great way to catch up with, okay, here's a big thing that happened to Russian Baptist in, in Germany. And then they often run longer news features that deal with trends. So for example, a number of churches and the steps they're taking to provide physical protection for their members in the U.S. Since there have been a number of church and synagogue shootings over the last few years, many churches now employ plainclothes detectives or plainclothes security people with armed 
it, that's the type of world we live in now. And it's an explanation of the different ways they're trying to protect their congregations, still maintain a Christian atmosphere, still trying to do worship. So it's not an easy issue to solve, but we, our reporter did a good job of just talking about what's going on in that area. I just think one of the, especially for people who are rushed all the time, to have that news section in there to get an overview of the big stories in a paragraph and then have a longer story or two to talk about some trend that we should be aware of. It's just the news team, they're just awesome. I can say that because I've had no responsibility overseeing them or training them, <laughs> so I can brag about them. They've won lots of awards from news organizations over the years. They're just top drawer, beating out professionals from the Atlantic and the New Yorker and New York Times often. So it's a great gift to have those ty- that quality of people at CT right now. Completely agree. All right. If you would like to read more of our news coverage, you can do so by becoming a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. That is at orderct.com slash podcast, orderct.com slash podcast. Now is the time of the show. We call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in this last week. Go ahead, Mark. I think I missed my calling. It's a little, little late now, but I think I would have loved to have been an engineer. So this last week, I had to figure out, as I think I mentioned, I'm remodeling, refixing my trailer floor. And I realized in, in tearing out the old floor, the, the, the floor had been so bad, it's supposed to, on the edges, hold up the walls of the of the trailer. And the, the walls had sunk about two inches because of rot. So I had to figure out how I was going to get a four by seven piece of plywood in there. I had to figure out how to lift the sides of the trailer without lifting the actual structure of the trailer that supports the entire trailer with my three-ton jack, hydraulic jack. So I was able to figure out a way to do that. I lifted that the walls up without lifting the bed up, put that 4 by 7 sheet of plywood in there, let it rest back down on it, and it looks great. And it was such a satisfying feeling to solve that problem. How long did it take you? That was about a four-hour job between preparing the plywood and checking things out and making a couple mistakes and... That sort of thing. Good job. That's great. It's really cool. It's very satisfying to do something. As, as listeners know, I'm very satisfied when I do stuff like that. I think everyone is. The reason why you're not unsatisfied is when it takes you longer than four hours. Yeah, well. <laughs> and then you like break the wall of the trailer in the process. <laughs> exactly. That's when it's not satisfying. Well, very cool. All right. Where can people find you? I published something called The Galley Report, in which I link to stories I found interesting and sometimes make comment on them. You can receive it by going to Christianity slash The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report. We have about 20,000 followers, so it's a nice community. And I get emails every week from somebody, sometimes suggesting other links to go to, sometimes disagreeing, usually very amicably and often saying nice things. So I really, it's a... It's both a newsletter and somewhat of a community. I get to experience the community part more than other people do, but it's a it's a pleasure to do it. All right, Pastor Charlie, go ahead. One of the most exciting things, actually, that we're doing right now is what's called Vision 195 for Insight for Living. And basically, we're trying to reach 195 countries, their native uh, languages. Things are really moving beautifully. We're, we're hoping things will keep growing. Of course, that demands support, but we're great grateful to the Lord for what they're doing. The exciting thing was this week, somebody called and and we're doing a, based on Chuck Swindoll's commentary, we're doing these video 
clips that we teach every Bible passage based on the commentary, we see how people are responding. These uh, video clips, seven-minute video clips, are used in house groups, in uh, churches, small churches, where there's no qualified Bible teacher. We see what God is doing. And actually, whoever called asked for us to continue to do this further. And people can follow up on all of this through the website of inside.org. They will even see a new video profile of me that's going to be published, I think, this week. And they will have access to our, through that website, to our Arabic website. If they understand Arabic, we have all these sermons published in audio and in text on that website. So we're excited and we're praying that God would do uh, greater things through that vision 195 and just hope people will pray because people are hungry wherever you go in the world. And I travel extensively. People are hungry for just a word of encouragement, for a word of love and acceptance. And there's really none of that except in Christ. Is there a website that you suggest people go to learn more about this? They can go to insight.org. Also access the Arabic website for Arabic Insight for Living is arabicinsight.com. All right, my precious moment, I think, kind of something like that, was going camping this past weekend. We went camping, we stayed overnight on Saturday night, and it got into the 30s. Or I guess if I'm going to convert to Celsius, it was like one or two degrees Celsius. So that was chilly. Thank God that tents break the wind really well. The one cool thing that we saw was like really, really big pieces of hail that fell down. And then my whole experience with hail is that it, it like melts as soon as it falls. But this hail just like accumulated. And we all agreed that it looked like white Dippin' Dots ice cream. Like that's like literally <laughs> the effect that it looked like. It was kind of crazy weather. I had not experienced that before. So, you know, if you're going to go camping and it's going to be that chilly, might as well go for the crazy weather. I, I think it also snowed at like some point for maybe a minute or so. It was not that intense, but it was still crazy. Who knew that camping the second week of October would get you that type of situation? I just like literally went for the leaves, which I thought were going to be great that time of year, not yeah, for everything right. else. All right. And people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts. It's available on Spotify. It's available anywhere that you want to get a podcast. You can find us there. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And thank you to everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. Again, you can do so by going to orderct.com slash podcasts. We will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.